We are getting through a series on the Protestant Reformation. We're, uh, we're on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and we're calling this series Protestant uh, Transformation because uh, sometimes I think the word Reformation uh, makes us think in negative terms about, you know, going to reform school or something like that. Uh, we're talking about becoming more like Christ. And ideally, that's why you're here. I, I don't know, you know, maybe what uh, brought you to church this morning, whether you were dragged here or whether you just woke up on autopilot and ended up here. Uh, but we'd like to assume the best motives, and that would somehow include the desire to be changed, a desire to become a more consistent Christian, a desire to become more like Jesus. And 500 years ago, the church was rediscovering all of these amazing truths about the gospel that were radically changing lives. And if these things aren't changing us, then we're missing the meaning. We're, we're not really understanding the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us as his word applies to our lives. So let's turn to Romans chapter 8 uh, for a rather surprising sermon on predestination. Yay! You came here to hear a sermon about predestination, uh, and I'm sure that fills you with all kinds of conflicting thoughts and feelings. Uh, don't worry, I think it's going to be okay, but I do want to um, expose some, some, maybe some false ideas about what predestination is, and, uh, and see how this is really life transforming, uh, truly. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 28, a very familiar verse to most of us, uh, but I'm going to continue Paul's train of thought so that you see how he connects the goodness of God's plan for us with uh, the fact that we really are predestined to this. Let's begin in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray for us.
Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word to us this morning. Send your spirit. Um, sharpen our minds. Soften our hearts. Change our lives, we pray, through the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, we're going to talk about Protestant predestination and then ultimately um, conclude by talking about how predestination transforms us when it's properly understood and we really grasp it uh, biblically. Uh, it's good. Um, we're, we're looking at the series that Kyle began uh, last week uh, called TULIP. Uh, there's this acronym from 500 years ago that walked through total depravity and unconditional or unqualified election, which is what we're talking about uh, today. Uh, there's limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, and we're doing a survey of these doctrines so that you can see that A, they're biblical, and B, they're gospel, and they're important to us. Uh, Kyle was preaching last week, Jesse Robinson was here the week before, uh, and I was thankful to have a couple of Sundays off so that Kathy and I could go celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. Uh, we took a trip to Italy. Um, you know, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so what do we do? Uh, we made a pilgrimage to Rome. Uh, our second day there, we went to uh, St. John's. And uh, St. John's is the uh, main Catholic church prior to St. Peter's. So... Uh, Martin Luther was protesting the indulgences that were being sold to build this grand new church, St. Peter's, uh, for the Vatican. And before St. Peter's was built, the popes uh, you know, were basically residing in St. John's. So we went to St. John's. I want to show you this, this slide where there are some stairs uh, at St. John's called the Scala Sancta, the holy steps that, um, that pilgrims have been climbing on their knees uh, for hundreds of years. These, uh, these stairs, uh, the legend is that uh, Constantine, Emperor Constantine's mother, brought these stairs to Rome from Jerusalem. And that these are the 28 marble stairs that led into, up, up into Pilate, Pontius Pilate's Praetorium. And that these are the 28 stairs that Jesus climbed after being whipped and beaten and scourged. And that there's still drops of his blood in the marble. That's the legend. Well, as you can see, people are still climbing these stairs. They're doing it on their knees. And at every step, they, they do a Hail Mary or an Our Father. And the Catholic Church promises them that if you do this, uh, you will get an indulgence, which is a fancy word for basically uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card uh, or a get-out-of-purgatory-early card, whatever um, uh, best way to describe it. An indulgence is a relief from penance that you will have to do in the afterlife. And so people are still doing it today. This is what Martin Luther did in 1510. He came to Rome and he climbed these stairs, and he did it on his knees, and in every step, he prayed in Our Father. And you know what he did when he got to the top of the 28th step? He looked down, and he said to himself, what did that accomplish? What did that really accomplish? Did this, did this actually have any kind of power over my eternal destiny, or is this just sort of 
empty. And he was really wrestling with that. He kept reading his Bible. He kept studying, uh, reading Romans in particular. And he discovered the miracle, the beauty, the grace of the gospel that says that, no, our uh, status and standing before God is not based on how many stairs we climb. It's based on Jesus and what he did in our place. And that was the beginning of the protest of the Protestant Reformation, where people like Martin Luther were trying to reform the church. There was only one church back then, the Catholic Church, and they're trying to bring purity and beauty and you know, uh, biblical truth back to the church, and you, you know what happened after that. Well, that wasn't the end of the protesting. A uh, hundred years later, there was another bit of rabble-rousing, this time not in Germany, it wasn't in Rome, it wasn't in, um, in um, Geneva, it was in the Netherlands. And this was called the Remonstrance. Uh, and this was a guy named Jacob Arminius. And his students, the Arminians, who were protesting predestination. Because they were like, hey, uh, Luther and Calvin and these other reformers, they're teaching the church that God predestines those who are going to be chosen to be with him forever. And Jacob Arminius was like, I don't like that. I, I, that's, that's not, that's, that doesn't sound like a loving God. I don't have any, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, well, this is a Westminster Confession of Faith that was uh, given to me in the new members class at Covenant Presbyterian Church. I think this was probably from 1990 or something like that. And I can remember as a brand new Christian, um, still very much about me and my thinking and so on. I knew that Jesus had saved me from my sins, but I didn't know a whole lot more. Uh, and we got to chapter 3 of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith of God's eternal decree. You know, it talked about things like predestination. And I went, ugh, I, what is that? You know, that's, that's, that's threatening to my autonomy, and I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, I was protesting predestination people still do today. And some of you do. <laughs> but we're going to have a friendly conversation about this. If you're protesting predestination, you, you, uh, you have an option. You can just ignore uh, what the Bible says about predestination, or you can try to figure out, all right, well, what am I going to do to kind of get around this? So you've got to deal with places like Romans chapter 8 where you see in verses 29 and following, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, etc. So you have to, if you're going to be a biblical Christian, you've got to acknowledge, hey, predestination is a biblical word. It's in the Bible. It's not made up by human beings. It's not part of just our theology or our church history. It's a biblical truth. And so now what? Okay, I don't want to ignore it because I want to be a biblical Christian, uh, basically what Jacob Arminius and people are still doing today in droves, this is actually the majority position within Christianity, is they look at Romans 8 and they say, ah, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And they take that word foreknew and they go, this is what happened. God, from ages past, from eternity past, looked down the corridor of time, and he foreknew that a day was going to come when Essen Daly was going to make the very noble and spiritual and righteous decision to choose Jesus. 
and that that's when God chose me. He chose me on the basis of my choosing him. God foreknew that I was going to choose him, and therefore he chose me. Uh, so that's one, one way to look at it. Um, you look at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, where Paul also talks about predestination and God's choice, that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, listen to this, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Um, so basically, when, when uh, those who are thinking about foreknowledge in the sense of, well, God chose me based on me choosing him, he knew that I was going to choose him, they, think, they look at Ephesians 1 and then they go, all right, in love, God predestined us for adoption, and they think of it this way. Um, we, were, we were in Rome, we were in Florence, and we were, Kathy and I were really blessed to see a bunch of, uh, of Michelangelo's artwork, of course, the Sistine Chapel, and of course, uh, the David, we went to see the David. We saw um, the, uh, the Pieta. So this is on the front of your bulletin. And uh, a Pieta is any uh, depiction of Mary holding the, the dead body of the crucified Jesus, right? And this is, um, everybody's got an opinion, right? And it's, art's fairly subjective, but I will tell you, that the majority opinion in the art world is that this is arguably the most beautiful, most perfect, best statue that's ever been created by human hands. And it's at St. Peter's, when you go in the front door, you know, you knock first, you go in. Uh, and you turn to the right and there's the uh, Pieta behind inches worth of bulletproof glass because uh, it's that valuable and it's that precious. Um, Michelangelo carved this when he was 24 years old. Uh, he carved the David before he turned 30. Uh, he did the Sistine Chapel. He did all kinds of other sculptures and paintings, um, which all of which was, uh, he considered to be kind of his, his secondary passion. His first passion was poetry. He really considered himself a poet first and an artist second. Michelangelo grew up uh, the son of a banker. And sadly, his mother died when he was six years old. So he had uh, a painful childhood. And his father uh, sent him to Florence where he lived with his nanny and her husband who was a stone carver. And that's where he was exposed uh, to making statues. Um, and then uh, he was apprenticed to an artist uh, who was in contact with the most powerful family in Italy, the Medici family in Florence. Uh, Florence was the birthplace of the Renaissance, and the Medici family were the heart and soul behind the Renaissance flourishing and taking off. And so the Medicis noticed Michelangelo, who at the time was only 13 years old. And they noticed his talent. They noticed his ability, his artistic um, power, uh, and, and they think, wow, if he's, this kid's this good at 13, you know, boy, we need to get a hold of him uh, because he's got incredible potential and, and he's going to just take over the art world. Um, and they adopted him. Literally, Michelangelo came into the home, the household of the Medici family, 
grew up beside their uh, biological children, one of whom grew up to be Pope Leo X, you know, so how's that for growing up beside a kid who's going to end up becoming Pope? And, uh, and that was that, was that, <laughs> that expression of adoption is really at the center of how people view um, God's adoption of us. Most Christians think that, well, what God does is he sees something in me, he sees my choice, he sees my potential, he sees my goodness, or he sees, you know, something in me that makes me qualified to be his. And so on the one hand, you've got well-intentioned Christians who are doing all kinds of weird stuff with God's word because they're protesting predestination. And then you've got those like Martin Luther and John Calvin, other reformers, who are protesting qualifications. They're protesting any any sense uh, in us that thinks that, you know what, I deserve. I deserve to be adopted. I deserve to be chosen. I deserve to be predestined. And they're all saying, not so fast, Mr. Arminius. That's really not the plain sense of what the Bible is teaching here. Not in any way can you read verses 37 and following and see that God's decision was based on us. Instead, what you see in verse 37, for instance, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And therefore I'm sure that neither death nor life nor any of these other things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, those who were uh, protesting our qualifications are insisting that it's not what is in us that makes us lovely, lovable to God. It's what's in God that is responsible for him choosing us. He loved us. And this is consistent all throughout the Bible. You go back all the way in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy, chapter 7, and you hear God's promise to his people, his old covenant people, uh, as he is explaining to them the nature of that covenant. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For actually, you were the fewest of all people. You are not a great nation. You are not hot stuff. You do not have wonderful technology and grandiose civilization. You are nothing. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. So, you know, in addition to being contrary to just the plain reading of Romans 8 or Ephesians 1 or Deuteronomy 7, the problem with a view of God's foreknowledge and predestination that's based on him seeing that we're going to choose him is that, well, we wouldn't choose him left our own devices. This is what Kyle was explaining last week. Look, we're in our, in our heart, in our soul. We have chosen self over God. That's what we would choose. I'd choose me, not God. Uh, and that's part of our total depravity, our thoroughly depraved hearts, um, where, yes, there's still the image of God uh, in us, but there is just awful wreckage, uh, so much so that we're going to choose ourselves left to ourselves. But God intervenes, 
And instead of giving us what we deserve, what we deserve is to be held accountable for our sins, we get grace, and we are chosen to receive God's mercy and grace. So those who were, you know, on the one hand, protesting predestination, those on the other side of, of, of things are saying, no, we're protesting qualifications, and they wrote um, summaries of their theology, like the Canons of Dort, where it says, this election was not founded upon foreseen faith and the obedience of faith, holiness, or any other good quality of disposition in man as the prerequisite cause or condition on which it depended, but men are chosen to faith and to the obedience of faith, holiness, etc. So it depends on what's in God, not what's in us. His mercy. His love. Why did God choose any of us? At the end of the day, there's only one reason. Because he loved us. Not because of anything in us, but because of the love that's in him. So, when we look at our passage again, we see uh, a couple of words about justification. Um, and when we talk more about unqualified election, we see that there's this unbroken connection between predestination and justification. So when we look at verses 30 and 33, we see Paul saying that God justified us. That it's God who justifies. Um, we live in a, in a culture that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty obsessed, actually, with justification. That might sound weird to say at first because justification sounds like a church word, you know. Our culture's not obsessed with church words. Well, maybe not with church words, but certainly with the idea of I want to be proved right. And that's basically self-justification. Everywhere you go, people are trying to minimize, hide, cover up, uh, deflect any sense of guilt for any, any wrong that they, they might be accused of. And, and then uh, when it's irrefutable and they can't hide or deflect or anything, what are they going to do? They're going to blame somebody else or they're going to say, uh, you know, I have an excuse for why I did it. So-and-so has no excuse, but I have an excuse. So we were very liberal with our own sense of why we're okay to do what was wrong and we're very critical of others. And we do this all the time. You and I do it, the culture does it. So like when we lose our temper, we go, well, I was provoked. You don't understand what, you know, he or she said to me, I was right to lose my temper. But then when somebody loses their temper with us, we're like, how dare you, right? Or, um, you know, you're at school and you, you, you know, uh, well, I don't normally do this, but I need to cheat this time. I need to cheat on my test or my, my quiz because, well, I had a game last night and so-and-so called and, you know, my parents were being, you know, hard or whatever. I just didn't have any time to study, so... I'll cheat this time. But then, the next week, so-and-so sitting beside you is leaning over wanting to see what you wrote on your test, and you're like, you know, what's wrong with you? You're cheating on me, off of me. Um, and so, right, we're kind to ourselves, and we're, we're critical of others, and we're self-justifying all the time. Uh, why are you flirting, you know, with the person at work? Well, because my spouse doesn't pay any attention to me. But when you see somebody else flirting with somebody you know, at work, you're like, oh, gosh, that's terrible. Why do you have an extra drink? And you know you don't. You, you know you've had enough, but you have another one. Why? 
had a hard day. I deserve it. But you look at somebody else who can't say no, who doesn't know when to stop, and you're like, can't believe that person. We self-justify ourselves all the time, and we're very, we want all kinds of latitude for ourselves, but we're, we're very strict on others. Why? Because we cannot abide the fact or the truth that we could somehow be wrong. And so, as I said, our culture is obsessed with justification, even though they don't realize that the answer to their desire, their longing to be right, to be declared right, is right here in God's presence, hearing his word, where God alone can justify somebody who's wrong. Nobody who is wrong or who is guilty can possibly justify themselves. It is absolutely nonsense. If you're wrong, you're wrong, and you can't justify yourself. The only person who can justify himself or herself is somebody who's innocent. Unless somebody steps in and says, well, I will take the penalty. I will absorb the blame. I will bear the guilt in place of the guilty party. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. When he justified us, he did something for us that we could not do for ourselves, right? We're helpless. What we deserve is something contrary to what we want. We deserve to be held accountable. What we want is to be let off the hook. And so what Jesus did is he stood in our place and bore our guilt and took our shame and even took our punishment on the cross. He didn't do it as a victim. He did it as a volunteer. And that makes all the difference. So that in this case, in this cosmic eternal case, it can be true that God can justify the guilty. Why? Because the penalty is paid. Jesus took it on himself in the place of sinners. All who call on him, as he says, come to me and I will give you rest. I will take your burden on myself. Call on him and your sins will be forgiven. And that is God's promise to any and all who call. We're also told that those who are predestined are those who are, who are called. And those who are called are going to be justified. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. So I just want you to see that when we see this relationship between predestination and justification, the reason why there's a relationship there, on the one hand, predestination says that, well, we're pretty much kind of helpless in this. God chooses us. And you know what? When it comes to justification, we're pretty much helpless in this. And God justifies us. It's a package deal. He does it for us who don't deserve it. And the reason why he does it for us, the reason why God justifies us is because it is God who loves us. The Apostle John puts it this way. You know what? We love. Why do we love? We love because he first loved us. That's why we love. And you look at verse, uh, um, verse 5 in our passage here, or, I'm sorry, verse 35 in our passage here, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37 talks about how we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And verse 39 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Deuteronomy 7 that we read earlier was saying over and over again, it's not because you were great, it's because he loved you. So it's all about God's choice to set his affection on us. And he does it freely and he does it sovereignly. And there's nothing in us that compels him. 
what glorifies God more? Let me put it this way. If we're all about, you know, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, what glorifies God more? God choosing us because we choose him? Or God choosing us because he chose to love us? What makes him greater? What exalts his mercy and his compassion to a greater degree? Well, looking at verse 30 and this string of, of, of this connection between being called and predestined and justified, basically what's going on here is that if you're justified, if you're a Christian, it's because you were called. And that if you're called, it's because you were predestined. And if you were predestined, you know why? It's because you're loved. Don't believe the lie that predestination is arbitrary. It's just sort of random. It's just this cosmic game of lotto or whatever, and who knows who's going to, you know, win. It's just, it's absolutely devoid from fatalism and from chance and any of that. It is a sovereign mystery, but it is based on a relationship of love for you. If you're justified, it's because you're called. If you're called, it's because you're predestined. If you're predestined, it's because you're loved. How do I know if I'm predestined? You don't have to worry about that. You just have to know what you're going to do with Jesus. Do you love Jesus or not? And if you do, guess what? You've been predestined. As we move on, you see that there's this link between predestination and transformation. Our whole purpose here is not just to explore theological doctrines and history and church and all that stuff, but to really come here and be changed by the Holy Spirit And when Paul says in verse 37, no, and all these things, these things, what things? What has he been talking about? He's been talking about predestination. When he thinks about predestination, his mind goes somewhere. And where does it go? He says that in these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, or anything else can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He uses this expression more than conquerors. Literally, the Greek says we're hyper winners. It's where the word Nike comes from. Your shoes, your clothing, it's the Greek word for victory, winner. Hyper winners. That's not rhetorical flourish. That's not just sounding super spiritual. That's a political statement that Paul is making to the church that exists in the epicenter of the Roman Empire. And what Paul is saying there is that if you are in Christ, if you are loved by him, if you're chosen by him, that makes you a victor more powerful than the Roman Empire. That Jesus the empire of Jesus is greater than the Roman Empire, that, that the kingdom of Jesus is greater than all the kingdoms of this world combined, and that Paul can say that nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even the Roman Empire. And ten years later, Paul was in a Roman prison himself, in Rome, writing to Timothy, and at this point, Paul knew that the gig is up that he is about to be poured out like a drink offering, that he has run the race and he's finished the course and he is going to meet a Roman executioner any moment. And instead of despairing and instead of questioning, oh, I don't know if God loves me and how can this happen to me and oh my goodness, 
Uh, I've done so much for the Lord. Why is this happening? I don't deserve this. You know, and he's, you know what his tone is? This is what he says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So here's my point. When uh, Kathy and I were in Rome, um, we were kind of in this time warp because you'd go to some buildings and churches and you're in the 16th century, and then you go to other parts of the city, and you're in the first century, surrounded by Roman ruins, the Roman Forum, the Colosseum, and you know the palace, and so on. And in the Mamertine jail, where legend says Paul was in chains, writing to Timothy. Surrounded by all the demonstration of Rome's power and authority in the empire, and Paul can say with supreme confidence that I am sure that none of this, none of this can overcome what, is, what God has done in me. So let me ask you, are you more than a conqueror? Or, when things go bad, when the, when, the, when the sky is falling and the wheels are falling off and it's just kind of one bit of bad news after another, do you rejoice that you are loved by God, that you are secure in Christ, that there is a plan at work that is accomplished by a sovereign king? Or do you go, oh no, I must have done something wrong, or I can't trust him, or he's, he's out of control, he's not on his throne anymore. Which is it? The good news of predestination is that God doesn't just plan the ends, or he can't plan the ends without also planning all, everything that comes before it, the, the, the means. And that means that you and I are secure. That means that you and I are more than conquerors, that the world can be aligned against you and it is still something that God is planning in love to conform you to the image of Jesus. The wheels have not fallen off. The sky is not indeed falling. God is loving you. I know it's hard, and I know that there are things going on in your lives that are just acute and painful. You're loved. Don't lose sight of the fact that God has loved you, and he's working out a plan that might be mysterious to you right now, but there's a day coming when it's all going to go, this collective shalom, ah, I get it. So Paul was more than a conqueror, and Paul and us are more than qualifiers. Michelangelo was this artistic prodigy, and he was recognized at an early age, and he was welcomed into this family because of his qualifications. You and I are not qualified. <laughs> There's nothing in us that would warrant, hey, God's saying, come on into my family. I see a lot of potential in you. No, we were kind of doing the other thing. Um, one of the beautiful things about that, those stairs that Martin Luther was climbing on his knees is that they are this picture of our desire to somehow get close to God. And what God did for us way back again in the Old Testament is he sent a dream to a man named Jacob. And in that dream was a set of stairs or a ladder, you know, really not sure based on the language, but it was this place where angels were ascending and descending, a point of contact between heaven and earth, a promise 
that it's not about our effort, our qualifications to ascend up to God, but a promise that God will descend to us and love us. And so we can stop trying to justify ourselves because we have been justified by God. And guess what that means? You and I can become more than self-qualifiers. That means that you and I can stop hiding. You and I can stop putting the wall up. You and I can stop, you know, minimizing. We can start apologizing. We can start being honest with each other. We can start offering forgiveness as well as asking for forgiveness. Why? Because you're already right in the eyes of God. Do you get it? Lastly, more than conquerors, more than qualifiers, um, we can be more than questioners. Here's, here's something fun to think about. By this time, you've probably, you know, maybe you've already checked out half an hour ago. Predestination, nope, done. <laughs> but if you're still with me, here's, here's what I want you to hear. Um, we're talking about these doctrines of grace. We're in Romans 8. And so, yeah, I'm making a heavy, hard case for the beauty and the goodness of God's absolute sovereign love for us. Does that negate our human responsibility? Have I said anything that says you're just a puppet? You don't have any choice. You're just on the strings and you're just a victim of cosmic fate. Have I said anything like that? No. The Bible doesn't say anything like that either. In fact, what the Bible says is both. The Bible affirms that God is a sovereign king and a good and righteous judge. That means that he will do what in his sovereign pleasure he deems fit, and that he will also hold us accountable for what we in our autonomous pleasure think and see fit. Sadly, in the church, uh, and maybe this has been your experience, Christians end up kind of getting pitted one against each other. There are those Christians who really want to affirm the sovereignty of God, and our sole focus is just on all those passages that have to do with predestination and chosen by God and so on, and we really want to exalt the sovereign great God. And then you get other Christians over here that are, you know, really about evangelism, and, you know, you need to respond to the gospel, and human beings are responsible, and we have to make a choice to follow Jesus, and they're focused almost exclusively on all those passages that have to do that. And they end up in this tug of war, and they're just stuck in an artificial binary option that isn't in the Bible. Why? Why do I say that? Because the Bible doesn't pit one against the other. The Bible affirms both. If I hadn't been so arrogant as a sophomore or junior in college, I would have read the rest of chapter 3 in the Westminster Confession of Faith that says that this doctrine, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. Meaning, don't be an idiot with predestination and assume that nobody has any choice. And what we have to do at the end of the day is bow to something bigger than our finite minds can comprehend and acknowledge that on one hand, yes, there's God's sovereignty. On the other hand, yes, there's human responsibility. But these do not create an artificial binary you know, thing where you got to choose one against the other. There is a third point, and it's called mystery. 
And when you connect those dots, it creates a triangle. It creates space. It creates an area where you can feel logically frolic and love your brothers and sisters who maybe are in a different place than you when it comes to what passage of the Bible they're reading or what they're experiencing through the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery, but it's a glorious mystery. I will tell you, the reason why we're here <laughs> is because of God. We love because he first loved us. We're his children because he adopted us. We're saved because he predestined us. But that doesn't mean that we don't go share the gospel. It doesn't mean that we're not going to stand before a throne on a day that's coming, I don't know when, and have to give an account. Did I follow Jesus or not? So let me close by asking you, are you following Jesus or not? If you're following him, praise the Lord. That's the evidence of your adoption. That's the evidence of your predestination. It's happened to you. You don't have to wonder, am I predestined or not? That's not the question. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? And if you're not following him, then why not? Why are you holding back? What do you need him to prove to you that he loves you more than he already did? You can trust him. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace as your people to bow to things that are higher and bigger and larger than our finite minds can comprehend. And one of those things is certainly the dynamic between your sovereign rule over this universe and our accountability as your image bearers to make choices and to govern things in ways that are wise and good rather than sinful and selfish. So please, uh, let us find our refuge in Jesus um, who justifies us and who loved us, which is why we can be justified. Lord, for those who are struggling this morning about this truth and whether or not they're chosen or elected or predestined, Lord, help them to just rest in Jesus. And for those who are doubting this and protesting predestination, please just help them to come to peace through the power of your spirit with what, what does the Bible teach. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us Jesus in whose name we pray.